Good morning. Man, it's good to see you guys. It's good to see you from DeForest. It's good to see you from Mineral Point. It's good to see you from Madison. You guys are strong. Strong. It's good to have you viewing online as well. It's great to be here. And God's word is such a privilege to jump into. We're going to do that this morning. You can track with us in your notes and online there. You can from our Facebook page, uh, Life Church MH, or our website. Um, you can download the notes and track with us this morning. This morning's sermon is entitled Financial Wisdom from God via Solomon. Money's a funny subject, isn't it? <laughs> Nervous laughter. <laughs> people hear and talk about money. Some people love to do that. They could talk all day. Other people hate it. Sometimes money accomplishes great things, and sometimes it accomplishes great evil. Some people seem to be born into it. Others seem to work their entire life and still not be able to make ends meet. There are people who have a lot of money or make a lot of money, but they have huge debt. And there are others that make very little, but somehow manage to save a lot. So many statistics out there that identify money as the number one reason for arguments and fights within a marriage and divorce. It can be a huge stressor. I retired when I was 19 from busboy and dishwashing after five years of hard work. And then I had to return to the work field because I had negative money. <laughs> My kids have a list of responsibilities that they do throughout the week, and some they get paid for and some they don't. Uh, some of them that they get paid for will give them quarters at the end of the week if they've checked off their checklist. And sometimes if they really want something, they're really excited about getting something, they will ask me if there's some work they can do. And so we'll uh, have them be shoveling some snow or cleaning the car. And my kids are into Legos. They love Legos. My three-year-old doesn't have any Legos of her own. And so she wanted to try to earn some extra money. Some of you guys heard this on Wednesday night. But she did an amazing job. She was in the bathroom. She washed all the mirrors. She's three years old, but she's standing up on the countertop, double counter vanity sink, washing this huge mirror. She doesn't miss a square inch. God bless her. She washes the whole thing with... Lotion. <laughs> and I paid her to do that. And those mirrors are the softest mirrors, most well-hydrated mirrors in Mount Horeb. I don't know where you come from financially or what your feelings are about the topic, but God's word speaks a lot about perspective and instruction regarding finances he has so much wisdom for us today, I can't wait to jump into the scriptures. And today, specifically, we're going to be looking at Solomon. Solomon gives so much advice for finances, and we'll be talking about other, people's, um, other people within the Bible, their perspectives and instruction as well, but we're going to hang out, keep returning to Solomon today. Solomon was the third king of Judah, son of David, the famous David and Goliath, David. Uh, 10th century BC, Solomon was known for his wisdom and his riches. And so two of the books in the Bible, um, and more, but two that we're going to focus on today are Proverbs, written by Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. 
Number one on your notes, if you're tracking Roman numeral one, the biblical perspective on money. Subpoint number one, don't idolize money. Solomon says in Proverbs 28, 20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Man, I have hastened to be rich a lot of times. <sighs> and you're punishing yourself in some respects. Obviously, robbing, cheating, uh, lottery tickets, gambling, no, day trading, probably not for me. Ecclesiastes 5.10, Solomon says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This is vanity. You know, if you love money, you like it too much. If you love it, you like it too much. Appreciate it, respect it, but love it, and you're playing a losing battle. Your priorities are wrong. Solomon's father, David, said this in Psalm 62.10. He said, the last portion of the verse reads, If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Money cannot fulfill you, but it can mislead you. Give money your heart, and you become a slave. Jesus talked about money. Matthew 6, 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for you'll either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. There's only room for one God on the throne of your life. One owner, not a partnership. Because, because why? Because love of money is attached to greed and envy and me-centeredness and selfish indulgence. Character traits that are incompatible with the generosity and the agape love the gracious love of God. Obviously, money in itself is neutral. It's not bad. It's not good. But love of money is bad with a capital B. Paul, Paul said to Timothy and his church, he's instructing Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. Both rich and poor people can suffer for and from love of money. One could argue, but I'm not rich. But that still doesn't matter because our thoughts and our affections can be enslaved to the craving or the desire for or the building up of money. There are rich people and poor people who do not love money, and there are rich people and poor people who do love money. Most of us have heard, at some point or another, the, the scripture, Matthew six nineteen through 21. It's Jesus speaking, and he's giving context to people. And he says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. There's never been a thief that's broken into heaven. That's awesome. right? 
Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Yeah. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You can't buy your way into heaven. You can't take money with you when you die. Money doesn't pay off your sin debt. Only the mercies of God can wash away our sin, make us white as snow. There's actually a story in the Bible uh, in Acts where the disciple Peter, um, they are ministering to people. People are, they're, they're telling the gospel to people. People are putting their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And when they do so, they're filled with the spirit of Christ. And they're filled with love and joy and peace and patience, all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's visible. And, a, and an onlooker is watching. His name is Simon. He's a sorcerer. He's watching, and this is spectacular, what he's seeing and observing. And he approaches Peter and asks if he can purchase whatever they have or whatever power or whatever they're doing. Peter says to Simon, he says, may your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. Um, God did not keep but gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's coming a day when he will judge the world in righteousness and justice. God will not be looking at bank accounts but at the heart and soul of each person. And whoever's received his love and his mercies and his grace through his Savior, through the prophesied Messiah, they will be welcomed in with open arms into his heaven. There are many in life who think they are winning by the world's standards, and they look like they're winning, but they are losing, and they're completely missing God's love, love for others. They're missing their purpose. They're missing the reward that could be. Conversely, there's a lot of people that look like they're losing in life, but they are more wealthy than anyone on earth in the kingdom of heaven. Don't idolize money is number one. Perspective on money. It's good not to idolize. It's important for us not to idolize money. Only room for God on the throne of our life. Say, God, I live for you, and I want you to live through me. I don't want the dollar to be controlling my life and my thoughts and my actions all day, every day, wherever I go. Number two, um, and if that's you today and you're recognizing God is speaking to me. I've, I've done it. I've made money my God. Repent to the Lord. Say, God, I am sorry. I put my trust back in your son, back in you. I receive your forgiveness. Fill me with your spirit, Lord. And he does it just that quickly. Yeah. Number two, don't ignore money. Here's the other end of the spectrum Many people will use the above scriptures that we just talked about, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, and so forth, to excuse themselves from being responsible with money as a reason not to work hard or to manage their money well. Every decade has its Christians who say, God's coming back soon, so why waste time learning and growing or developing a skill or having a vocation? Why waste time creating a responsible budget I'm prioritizing the spiritual over the material. But we are to 
seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and in doing so, we are to serve the Lord, and we are supposed to grow in knowledge and understanding. We're supposed to use the material for the spiritual. Solomon said this, Proverbs 27, 23. He said, and he's the one that gave us the advice prior not to idolize it, but look at this. Here he says, be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. And in that time period, that was their dollars, their herds and their livestock. Wealth was measured by that. Note he uses the word diligent. He doesn't say be nonchalant, be indifferent, or be ignorant to know the state of your flocks. But be dil- pay, pay close attention to your accounts and your income, your expenses, your budget, your giving, your saving. Pay close attention. He also said in Proverbs 22, 7, he says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Some of us didn't need Solomon to tell us that. We already know. We knew that because we've learned it or we are learning it through personal experience. And the bank wants back interest on every money that they lend us. And it's true. Being ignorant or stupid with money will come back to bite you. It comes back to bite us. And in college, I thought, I, was, I thought it was a good idea to go to the Bahamas with my college buddies and on a cruise and to go to New York City and to buy a high-end electric guitar and I paid on those things and paid on those things. My wife, she's so gracious. She married me when I had school debt, car debt, and stupid debt. <laughs> it's, it was a lot of money. And, and 15 years later, what that adds up to, it's terrible. Solomon said, Proverbs 21.20 says, The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. It's interesting that Solomon warns about loving money Uh, But he also states that the wise have wealth and luxury. A fool spends whatever he gets. Do you spend whatever you get? Now, understandably, there's situations, and there's people that have difficulties and hard times. And so we want to... um, There are exceptions, but there's a a couple points here. Some, Some of my kids are good savers, Others have problems with money burning a hole through their pocket, so they have to spend it within 10 seconds of receiving those quarters. It's ignorant to spend all you have. It's foolish also not to work hard. The Apostle Paul, he addressed, had to address laziness and entitlement in the church of Thessalonica. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he said, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Again, the disclaimer, I, I know difficulties, single mothers doing the best they can. Many who go into ministry or missions, they give up all they have. They're reliant on the support of others. It's right for them to receive assistance. There's famine in parts of the world. There's persecution, rights taken away, maybe lack of opportunities. The point is, it's not, it is, it is wrong not to respect money because one's indifference becomes a burden to society. 
One's indifference becomes a burden to family members and neighbors and church and the community and taxpayers. And so, if you're in a hard place, this is not slapping you. There's, there's help. And I love that um, there's grace and there's help for people that are down. And if you know, if you or someone you know is, is struggling financially, I encourage you to reach out to the helps department of Life Church because they're there to help and assist in various ways. But there's a lot of adult children in culture that are freeloading and taking advantage of their parents. Um, in in uh, Bible times, uh, the, the boy was considered a man at age 13. That means you start pulling your weight, you start paying your way, you even start contributing resources. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, he says, but those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, they've denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Paul's telling Timothy here that people in the church should not, should not be only carrying their own weight, but they should be caring for their family and beyond. Having the love of God inside of you will give you a desire and an ability to do so. What happens is when you realize the grace of God, that he loves you so much, that he's forgiven you of all of your sins, there's such a gratitude that, that starts expanding in your heart, and the spirit of Christ that is dwelling within you all of a sudden wants to help people. It wants to even sacrifice for the benefit of other people. It's not only, you're not concerned for only yourself and my interests anymore. All of a sudden, God makes you so strong, so desiring to help and to take responsibility upon your shoulders. It's the love of God. Uh, when Paul's telling Timothy, worse than an unbeliever, how? Well, because there's a lot of people that were Christian by name only. They're Christian for its benefits, um, but it's a false representation. They didn't really have a relationship with God. They didn't have the spirit of Christ in them. No real love inside. Uh, faith with no works uh, is dead. And uh, they were giving Christians a bad rap. It's one thing to say, I don't believe in Christ, or I reject Christ, or I'm not a Christian. But there are people that say, I'm a Christian, but then would give such a false representation of what that is and what that looked like. And that is the context of they're worse than an unbeliever because it's giving a false representation to people. This section right here is on don't ignore money. If you've been irresponsible, repent. Say, God, I'm sorry. And maybe that's difficult or embarrassing to acknowledge, but so important. We all have excuses, but we need to repent. Say, God, I want to be responsible. I realize from Solomon and from your scripture and from your word, I can't just ignore money or say I don't like it or I'm spiritual, I don't worry about money. God has called us to number three. God has called us three, do invest money is the third one. Do invest, do, do manage money, steward money. Back to Solomon in Proverbs 13, 22, he says a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. So let's take what Solomon's told us so far. He says, don't idolize money. Don't be hasty. Don't be greedy. Don't hoard. But he also says, don't be ignorant. You need to work. You need to invest. And here he says, leaves a good inheritance. A good man. A good man leaves an inheritance. 
Now, I am not a fan of the prosperity gospel. Some of you have heard of what that is, where teachers say God wants everybody to be rich and famous and powerful, and all you have to do is have enough faith, and you name it, claim it, and God will give you a Ferrari. And, and that type of gospel, obviously, many in the New Testament, many believers lost their health and lost their wealth for the cause of Christ. And they gave it up because they're prioritizing the kingdom of God, and they sacrificed it on purpose. Um, God could call you or I to lay down our wealth, and we should be willing to do so. But if we're not beheaded for our faith or sent to concentration camps, in most cases, we should be moving from being a burden to becoming a blessing to other people. God has resources, right? The cattle on a thousand hill. God has resources. God is generous. God blesses people. And as his children, we should strive to be like him. Blessing people. We, we don't have to embrace a lifelong identity of victimhood because we're victorious in Christ. We are blessed. So we don't believe in the prosperity gospel. We also don't believe in the poverty gospel. That in order to be a good Christian, you have to be poor. And you have no money. And that's what makes you godly. Because guess what? Let me flip it. God... Let's read a couple more references and then we'll, we'll conclude with this section. 3 John 1-2. John is writing to Gaius. 3 John, I'm skipping ahead a little, guys. To first, uh, 3 John chapter 1, verse 2. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. See, so much for the prosperity or the, the poverty gospel. John is praying for this individual to be prosperous in all things and in health. And why did John pray for Gaius to be prosper, to prosper and have health? Because he wanted to borrow his Ferrari. <laughs> he wanted Gaius to have a posh life and a yacht. Now look at verse 5. We'll continue. Verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Gaius was not idolizing money. He was not greedy. He was not hoarding. He was not self-indulgent. He was also not poor through negligence or perceived necessity, like, since I love Jesus, I have to be poor. Rather, Gaius was responsibly stewarding and earning and investing and using money to honor the Lord and to serve other people. And Paul was praying that he'd continue to be able to do so, that he'd become more prosperous. Listen, God may have some of us poor, and God may have some of us rich, but we should all be good stewards. Good stewards. And that's where the church says, Yo! Yeah, we should all be good stewards. So we don't idolize it, we don't ignore it, but we invest it. We, we use it for God's glory. And we grow it and we use it as unto the Lord. Praise God, we can all grow in this. 
We can all grow in, in learning and knowledge and understanding with finances for the glory of God. Number two, um, I want to hear a big groan, the biblical precedence of giving. Now, I was being sarcastic. I wanted you guys to go, yeah! Speaking on giving, tithes, or offerings at church can create tension and ill will if done without context or understanding. A lot of distrust and mixed feelings about giving. My dad was telling me, I was speaking to him, and I said, I'm talking about finances in church this week. And he said, oh boy. <laughs> and, um, and he said he was 19 years old um, when he left home for, for, in Rapid City, he went to Sioux Falls, and he was 20, and he thought, I don't have to go to church anymore. I can do what I want to do. And a couple years went by, and he, went, he decided to go back to a church. And he went back to the church that he knew and that he'd kind of grown up in, um, the same denomination in Sioux Falls. And they had a guest speaker that spoke on money, and he said, I've never seen a church empty out so fast as, as when that guy gave that sermon. And my dad left that church that day, and, and when he left it, he had a friend of his invite him to another church that was meeting that evening. And that's where my dad got saved. And it was the Spirit of God was there, and he felt the love of God, recognized his sin, and really um, made that decision to live for Christ and to have Christ be his Savior. So um, we don't want to, I don't want to have, I don't want to see if this is the quickest everybody can leave. Uh, instead, I'm just going to take five minutes, and I'm going to look to present a straightforward biblical precedent from Scripture for when and how and why to give, after which we'll move on to Roman numeral three. So we'll actually let the Bible do the talking. Solomon said this in Proverbs 3.9. Solomon says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns, verse 10 is, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vines will be full of grapes. For those who've had the privilege of studying um, and contrasting the Old Testament covenant to the New Testament covenant, there's a primary difference, or the primary difference is between law, which gives way in, into the New Testament, to grace. The Old Testament gives rules as, as a base requirements, and some of us think about the Ten Commandments. And the transition moves from doing the least to going above and beyond by the power of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The New Testament raises the bar. Old Testament had a 10% minimum precedent for giving. That was called the tithe. That's actually the Hebrew word. 10% means tithe. On top of this minimum, people would give offerings for specific tasks or services or simply show thanksgiving. What precedent does the New Testament set? So I have read many articles and listened to podcasts and, and in seminary listened and as, as individuals would argue that the 10% or giving to God in, in certain capacities is no longer um, for the church today or for people today. And I half agree with some of what they say. Their reasonings range from the idea that we no longer have a temple in Jerusalem, but now the church is God's people. It's true. 
They say, Jesus is now our high priest, so we no longer need to pay anyone to do religious work for us. Partially true. Uh, fully true. Uh, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, absolutely. And so each of these preferences um, are true, and yet the motives and conclusions are in error, and, and we'll see why. Let's look at a variety of Old Testament laws and see in what manner they're affected by New Testament grace. Does anybody know what the Eighth Commandment was in the Old Testament, the Eighth Commandment? Anyone venture to guess? That one was do not steal. Do not steal. And so that was um, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 6. That was the requirement. Don't cross the line of thievery is what, is what they learned, the Israelites learned in the wilderness. And, um, and if they crossed that line, they knew that they were on the wrong side of God. Right? What does the New Testament say? In Ephesians 4, 28, Paul's writing to Ephesus. He says, let him who stole steal no longer but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he might have something to give him who has need. Paul acknowledges the Eighth Commandment, that the line shouldn't be crossed, but then he calls the Ephesians upward to the law of love by going beyond the carnal law, by the power of God's Spirit, to not only not steal, but to work so you have something to give someone. The Old Testament command, do not murder. Jesus says, do not hate. The Old Testament command, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, do not lust. The Old Testament justice required eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So if somebody accidentally poked your eye out, you had the right, in all fairness, to poke their eye out, right? And then you're even. And in the New Testament, what does Jesus said? He says, forgive 70 times 7. He says, mercy triumphs over justice. And so you have a right, and, but instead of, instead of insisting on your right to poke the person's eye out, you forgive. That's right. And uh, that's, that's, Paul, that's what Paul says here in Corinthians 10, 23. Look at this. This is really cool. This checks our motives. Say motives. 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 Corinthians 10, 23. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have a right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Sure, you can be forgiven for murder, but that doesn't mean that it's beneficial or constructive to murder someone. You can steal, you can commit adultery. The, the sacrifice of Jesus forgives us of all sin, but that doesn't mean that those things are beneficial or constructive to do. Paul is pointing to a higher law in light of what God has done for us. The law of gratitude, the law of love, is not looking out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. So look at this now in regards to the tithe. Old Testament law required people to give 10% of their increase to God, and that's what Solomon was talking about. This money went for the work of the temple, the priests, the Levites, the poor, Offerings were given in addition. Some of you might recall the prophet Malachi. He was rebuking the people, the Jews, in Malachi 3.8. Speaking for God, he said, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In which ways have we robbed you? In tithes 
and offerings. The Jews were failing to give 10%, which was expected and required of them, to the Lord. But now let's flip to the New Testament. And what does Paul say? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. But I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, 10%. For God loves a cheerful giver. God is looking at motives. And listen to verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. There's a pretty clever um, commercial that was put together. Um, it's kind of a YouTube commercial, but it was a teaching on, on tithing. And um, a guy went into Krispy Kreme. He bought a six-pack of donuts, and he went out, and he gave it to a stranger that was on the side of the street, just another kind of a college kid. He said, hey, I got those for you, and, uh, and purchased them for you. And the guy's like, no way. Like, yeah. I said, those are yours, but um, I'm just heading off to work. Can I take one with me when I go to work? And the guy was like, well, I am really hungry, and my wife would probably like one too. And the point of it was, was everything we have comes from God. Every, the cattle on a thousand, you know, our abilities to work, the opportunities we have, all the resources on earth are God's. Cassie told me when we got married, um, and, and I had started tithing a year or two before I met Cassie, because for a long time I hadn't, and I started tithing. And when I met Cassie, she said, I don't want to treat God cheap. Let's always round up. She didn't want to have a mental battle of, am I giving God enough or not, or are we even, or are we, are we fulfilling our, what we should be doing? And I said, makes sense, I guess. Let's do it. And I appreciated that, because that helped our hearts be in the right position. Number one, give with the right heart. Giving keeps our heart in the right position and our eyes on the right priorities. Acknowledging God's provision, trusting in the Lord's care, and prioritizing the care of others. When we do that, when we prioritize God's kingdom first, we're saying, God, you're number one in my life. I trust you, not the dollar, to take care of me. I trust in you, not my own wisdom, not my own striving. I trust in you, God. Have you ever met a mature Christian in his latter years who said, I wish I would not have given so much to the church? No. They're excited at what they've been able to, what God has been able to accomplish through them. In the same manner that there was work to be done in the Old Testament temple, there's work to be done today and expenses to pay. In the same manner that the Old Testament money was used to support the priests and Levites and the poor, we're told in the New Testament to do likewise. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says, And he, God, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, missionaries, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. God wants some people to devote their lives to doctrine and teaching and ministering in such ways for the equipping of the saints. 
God still desires to give people to give faithfully to his kingdom ministry. And we should provide well for those who labor in ministry and in missions. Number two, give for God's work. So we give with the right heart and we give for God's work. 1 Corinthians 9, 9 through 11, and verse 14. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of, or and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? Verse 14, even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18 says, let the elder who rule the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Guys, I am thankful for Life Church because Life Church has been here for 33 some odd years. I'm thankful for Pastor Lee. He's been here for 33 years. I'm thankful that this church has supported missionaries on three different continents. This church has planted churches, has a plant, church plant right now in New York City. This church has helped the community a lot. They know our names at the village when we call to pay people's electric bills. Because you guys are being faithful with giving. It's powerful. You guys are an example. And it is so cool our mortgage was just paid off last month. So cool. Obviously, there are people here who believe in giving. How cool to support your family, to support your church, to support a new school, Christian school. It is, it's also neat for your kids to know that mom and dad are working to bless people. It's really neat. It's fulfilling to see what God accomplishes through us as we honor the Lord with our possessions and with the first fruits of our increase. And maybe that's what some of you needed. Maybe God is challenging some of you to begin to give. A good starting place is to commit to give regularly to the Lord and start with a percentage of your paycheck. A lot of people here, I think nearly 70% of Life Church people give online, and they make it an automatic reoccurring payment that... Um, corresponds with their payday. It goes directly. I would say this, if it's, and I remember when I first started tithing, um, do not let initial bumps in the road stop you. I remember having a conversation with a gentleman who said, when I started, the day or the month that I started tithing, my furnace went out and my transmission went out. And <clears throat> yeah, this tithing thing is, is working great in my life. <laughs> Stick with it. Learn to trust the Lord. Yeah. Learn to trust God and experience God's faithfulness in your life. That's right. So, Roman numeral three, the biblical principle of 
investing. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, there are six verses given specifically for investing. Again, Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. We saved this point for last because the first two Roman numerals are foundational for a proper perspective and proper handling of money and a proper heart attitude for money. Of what value is money in the hand of a selfish fool? But how awesome when the people of God are able to increase and manage resources for the kingdom of God. That is awesome. The book of Ecclesiastes is a book of Solomon making sense of life. And throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes, he uses the term under the sun, I think 33 times, to denote apart from God or apart from a final judgment or apart from um, supernatural, things on earth do not make sense. And he talks about the race is not always to the fastest, the... Uh, the battle's not always to the strongest, and sometimes good people are blessed, and, and or, I mean, bad people are blessed, and good people are killed. And he says, you try to make sense of this stuff on earth, and it will not make sense apart from God and eternity and heaven where the scales are balanced. And so, so he does that. He says, um, it's not until the final chapter that he gives the conclusion of the matter, and the conclusion of the matter is fear God, Honor, respect, revere God, keep your eyes on God, and keep his commandments. Obey the Lord. That's the way to live. In chapter 11, he gives us specific advice on investing. Here we go. Verse 1, we'll read the passage and then we'll take it one verse at a time. Send your grain across the seas, and in time, profits will flow back to you. But divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. When clouds are heavy, the rains come down. Whether a tree falls north or south, it stays where it falls. What does that mean? Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. Verse 5, just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon. For you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another or maybe both. Number one, don't digest but Invest. He says, send your grain across the seas and in time profits will flow back to you. Some people eat the seed. Here's a package of seeds. And if you're really hungry, you might eat those seeds. And it wouldn't be very satisfying or fulfilling, literally and figuratively. Some people do that. They, they eat out all the time. They're eating their money. Some people, their, their lifestyle is too lavish. We need to rein in living expenses. Go back to beans and rice, and, and we eat a lot of oatmeal. That's good. PB&J. So some people eat their seed. They spend everything they get. I was talking about my kids, and they're burning a hole through their pockets. Other people sit 
on the seed. They are fearful. They're so fearful to invest, they're too careful, which actually isn't careful, but foolish. They're too careful. They hoard seed, maybe under a mattress or or savings account. Solomon would say, that's better than eating your seed, but it's not as good as investing. He says, cast your bread upon the waters or send your grain across the seas. Don't hold too tightly. Don't just stick money in your savings account and lose half its worth in 20 years through inflation. Some people never purchase assets or make investments because they're too worried about all that could go wrong. Solomon warns us about hastiness, but he also warns us about being overcautious, paralyzed. What camp are you in? I'm probably in the hasty camp. I'm a little too hasty, and I need to be a little more cautious. And there's some people in the cautious camp that, that need to uh, be a little more courageous. 2 Corinthians 9.10, Paul says, For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer. And Solomon would say, don't eat the seed, don't sit on the seed, but invest your seed, your resources, for good. Invest your resources for good. That is exactly what Solomon did. He provided food and traded with other countries by way of ships. Look at 1 Kings 10.22. This is what Solomon did. The king had a fleet of trading ships of Tarshish that sailed with Haram's fleet. Once every three years, the ships returned loaded with gold, silvery, silver, <laughs> ivory, Apes and peacocks. He was sending food out to other countries and receiving great other resources in response. Prophet did not come back the same day. It says, and in time, not right away, but maybe not the next week, but Solomon challenged us to, us to play the long game. And for him, it was three years with those ships. Proverbs 13 11 says, wealth from get-rich-quick schemes quickly disappears. Wealth from hard work grows little by little. Number two, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Corresponding with verse two, it says, Solomon says, but divide your investments among many places, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. The King James Version says, give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. Um, biblical scholars kind of have two different interpretations of that. Some say it's being generous with friends, giving servings to seven or eight, and others are thinking that it's more he's connecting that with verse one about being diversified with investments. Whatever the intent, in times of trouble, it's good to have good friends and investments. Right? The word diversity uh, or diversify it means. Don't make everything dependent on one thing. Don't put all your resources into one thing. Don't spend, don't depend for your success on a single plan. Don't concentrate all efforts into one area. Don't put all your eggs in one basket because if you get tripped or the basket gets nudged, you can lose it all very quickly. What are some types of investments or assets? People think about stocks and mutual funds, um, other assets, investments, retirement plans, 401ks, IRAs, 403bs, real estate, providing housing for people 
to rent or buildings for businesses to lease, bonds, certificates of deposit, and annuities, commodities, wheat, corn, oil, coal, so forth. Owning a successful business could be an investment. Some options, some ways to invest. These terms and concepts, if they're foreign, then I encourage you to meet with a financial advisor or just find people that you would respect and ask some questions and have coffee and ask for some book recommendations. So we can learn, we can grow in some of those ways. Having a few different places growing your money will alleviate the risk of it all being wiped out by one catastrophe. Some of you guys might remember Enron in 2001. The company Enron employed approximately 29,000 staff and was a major electricity, natural gas, communications, and pulp and paper company. Claimed revenues of nearly $101 billion during 2000. Fortune named Enron America's most innovative company for six consecutive years. And so someone might think, I'm going to put all my eggs in the Enron basket and buy all stock of Enron. And if they did so in 2001, they would have turned on the news one day and they would have heard about Enron's accounting fraud scandal. Enron went bankrupt on December 3rd, 2001, almost overnight. Many a person has lost everything because they didn't listen to Solomon's advice to diversify. Instead, the one basket that they had was destroyed by number three. Number three, expect the unexpected. Solomon says in verse three, when clouds are heavy, the rain comes down. Whether a tree falls north or south, it stays where it falls. Some things in life are predictable and others are very random. Unexpected things happen. Difficulties come. Many things are outside of our control. It's important that we're aware of that on the front end, that we acknowledge it, anticipate it. Some of us have been burned. We, we tried to start a business once and we tried again and it didn't work and it didn't work again. Or we invested in stocks for a couple months or for one year and we lost money. And so the factor, it's important for us to factor fallen trees into our expectations. Factor fallen trees into our planning. We can't be surprised about the brokenness of this world. Transmissions do go out and furnaces do go out. Expect the unexpected. It's important that we have the right response to difficulties. It's important that we plan ahead and expect difficulties. Important to have an emergency fund. Let's keep moving. Number four, take action and do not wait. Solomon says in verse four, farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they never harvest. Man, farmers just do it. You know, it has nothing to do with feelings, but everything to do with just getting out there and, and doing it. Don't let your feelings interfere with the process. Don't try to time the market. Famous last words is, I will start saving when, 
And my high, there was a high school teacher. There was one class we had. It lasted just a few weeks. And that was all we have in school. They don't teach about finances. Um, we, we heard about finances for about four weeks from one guy. And, um, and he said, start, and he showed us all the graphs. If you start saving now this much, you'll have this much by retirement. Or if you wait until you're 20, or if you wait until you're 30 or 40, and then you start saving, then you'll have this amount. And the graphs were amazing. And as an 18-year-old, I was like, whoa, wow, i got to start saving now. I'll start saving. And he says, a lot of you will never start, start saving. I was like, who wouldn't start saving? Because you'll say, first I have to fill in the blank. First, I need to go to college. First, I need to get a car. First, I need to get married. Kids are expensive. And so we don't ever save anything. My dad would say, if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get the job done. Proverbs 26, 13, Solomon says, the lazy person claims there's a lion on the road. Yes, I'm sure there's a lion out there. There's always reasons to put off working or investing. Take action. Do not wait. Hey, this week, and maybe this is something you write down, meet with, set up a meeting with a financial advisor. Talk to your employer. If you guys, ask if you, there's any plans available for saving or investing through your company. Open a separate bank account that can be for saving and maybe have an automatic transfer. Maybe of your paycheck that comes in, 15% of that automatically gets transferred to this other account where you're at least getting some momentum and some traction, and maybe that's invested in one of the assets that we briefly spoke about. For some of us, it's just filling out a job application, you know? That's the, this week, Let's see if we can fill out a couple job applications. Begin to develop a skill or business, a little bit of time each day. Number five, God is working. God is working. Just as you cannot understand, verse five, the path of the wind... Or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb. So you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. You know, when I get hit with a gust of wind, I have no idea where that gust was one minute before it hit me. Where was that gust that hit me that I felt? Where was that one minute prior? We don't know the ways of the wind. Jesus said, my father is always working, and so am I. John 5, 17. God's always working. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His ways are above our ways. We can't put God in a box. We can't figure them all out, right? His plans and his timing are more important and better contrived than anything we could do or think of. God is not limited in how he can provide from us. He provides water from a rock uh, provides for the widow of Zarephath, five loaves, two fishes. God's able to keep a vehicle running if he needs to keep a vehicle running. We're to be faithful with whatever is in front of us to the best of our abilities. You know, we do our best as under the Lord. We manage money for the Lord. But our trust is in the Lord, and he can open doors, he can close doors. We don't know if some things will work out, if some things won't. If a huge door will close in our face, which will cause us to look this way at amazing opportunity that God has for us. That's how God sometimes works, is he uses our faithfulness to get us to a place where we think we're going, and then he shows us what he had in mind all along. Really cool, which is why, number six, consistency is key. Solomon says, plant your seed in the morning, verse 6, 
And keep busy all afternoon, for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or another, or maybe both. He says, take the long-term approach with finances. Be faithful. We live for the Lord. We allow his spirit to live through us. We live for the greater reward. Um, So financially, but just spiritually speaking, Paul says, Galatians 6, 9, let us not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we'll reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. There's just a lot of scriptures and a lot of instruction about money and perspective and about giving and about investing. And thanks for us to grow, and I'm so grateful. I don't know what God has been speaking to you today, along what line, how he's challenged you or encouraged you. But let's thank him right now. Lord God, we thank you for your word today. God, I thank you that you're a big God. And Lord, as we sang today, Lord, in the songs of revival, Lord, you use small people to do great things. You're a God of miracles. You're a God who keeps his promises. Lord, we may, who knows how much longer this world has and, and if our uh, credit cards are turned off tomorrow. <laughs> bank accounts are emptied. Who knows if you come back in the next few days or months or years. You do. But we cast our cares on you, Lord, and we uh, trust in you, Lord, and we want to be good stewards, and we want to be in position, Lord, if you want to use us, and we want to be a blessing, Lord, to people around us and our families. Will you teach us? I thank you, Lord. You've promised to do so. I bless your name. Thank you for these scriptures. Thank you for this teaching. In Jesus' name, amen.